if you can establish healthy relationships and not just relationships that are uh, monolithic in nature, you know, to just talk to people that agree with you uh, is not healthy. The growth comes out of the tension. The learning comes out of the tension. So if you can begin to build relationships that are uh, personal, non-transactional, and open to, uh, to difference, new possibilities and new opportunities can come out, out, of, out of those kinds of spaces. You're listening to Indianapolis community leader Imhotep Adisa, executive director and co-founder of the Kepra Institute. Imhotep is my guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. I'm really excited in this episode to feature a conversation with Imhotep Adisa, an individual who has influenced my thinking over the past two to three years, maybe more than any other individual. Imhotep is the co-founder and executive director of the Kepra Institute, a nonprofit organization focused on empowering youth and building community wealth in Indianapolis. Their programs are well known to many of you listening, including um, developing uh, small businesses and entrepreneurship, especially among young people, programs to address food insecurity and environmental justice in Indianapolis, programs to host critical conversations about community issues with a very broad range of people from the community, various programs to help individuals be better advocates and activists in their community. And what can you even say about the year 2020 and the just the worldwide challenges? But I think for most of us, it's definitely made us think more critically about issues facing Indianapolis and the United States in general, COVID's disproportionate impact on black and brown people and low-income people in the United States, the greater awareness about racism and racial inequities in our community, and my friendship with Imhotep and his influence on the Indy Chamber um, and myself has been very, very positive in terms of helping us identify ways in which the business community has to change its practices and policies that need to be changed both in our city and nationally. I wanted to get into the story of Kepra Institute because it is a unique organization. I have a lot of respect for it because it is a community nonprofit organization, but I see them very much as a getting things done organization as well. So Imhotep tells the story of the the origin of the Kepper Institute, talks a lot about his own leadership background. And then um, the second half of the conversation, we get into some of his personal reflections on how bringing people together, given the challenges we face, the political challenges and community challenges we face is a tall order, but it's through building relationships with people who think differently than us as individuals that he believes is really the key. And uh, I was really uh, pleased that he was willing to share uh, his personal philosophies on this. Anyway, I I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do too. It's a chance to get to know better Imhotep Adisa.
Hey, man, I'm following your stream, so <laughs> however you want to roll. Well, I guess um, the, this is I, – I know I know it's not the – I know I want to um, have these conversations regularly, but I guess if anybody's listening right now and has not met you before, um, can you give a little bit of your – your background and especially the events uh, in your life before you uh, founded the Kepper Institute. Sure. Um, born and raised in Indianapolis. Um, grew up on the west side, Riverside area. Uh, lived in the same house. Uh, my mother raised three boys. Uh, I'm the oldest child. Uh, went to school 44, K through 8. Uh, walked to school every day, and uh, when I, when I got out of high school, the uh, my mother decided that uh, I think that was right during some of the busing era, and I was originally going to go to uh, I think George Washington High School. There was a change made, and then our community was going to get bused to Manual, and my mother asked me, did I want to go to Cathedral? And uh, it was on it was on um, Meridian at the time, all boys school. I had no idea. Now, of course, my mother had other motives that I didn't realize at the time, and that was her, her form of a, uh, a birth control by uh, uh, moving me into a school there were where there were no uh, no girls, just all boys. I remember like yesterday, I got there and saw all these guys on the wall. I said, well, where are the girls in, Mom? He said, no, no girls at school, son. So at any rate, uh, the, uh, the beauty of the school was that it was, um, you know, a college prep school. So, you know, just by going there, uh, you will be prepared to, to go off to college if, if uh, that was in your, your, your bandwidth to consider. Uh, so... Um, that's uh, the school story. And then actually my senior year in, in high school, my uh, counselor asked me, did I want to be an engineer? And I said, well, what is that? Somebody drives a train? He said, no, no. Uh, so I asked, well, how much money do they make? And I forget how much money they made at the time. I said, yeah, sure. And so at that time, Purdue was uh, recruiting for minority students to study engineering. And I had enough of a... Um, background in math to uh, enroll at Purdue. So I went to Purdue for two years. And I would say uh, Cathedral and plus the uh, Purdue were uh, life-changing experiences for different reasons. Uh, Cathedral was my first time being engaged in a predominantly white space. But we'll leave there and then come home to a predominantly black space. And the piece about that was also kind of transforming was that I was the only one, you know, you, you, you don't go through high school and stay connected to your peers you grew up with. So uh, it was a real, really a different period in my life as it relates to how I spent my time after school also. Uh, only other piece I'll say about my child, you know, I grew up, you know, I was really a nerd as a kid. Uh, I asked for books for Christmas. Uh, I was into all kinds of sciences, just was a prolific reader. Uh, my mother got me a, um, a library card to the 
um, the adult vision, division of the library when I was in the seventh grade. So on Saturdays, I would go to the library and just roam the stacks. Sometimes I bring these books home. I had no idea what I was reading. Uh, one, one, uh, yeah, I remember getting this book on differential equations. And I mean, I had no idea what I was looking at, but I had magazines uh, at that time. Uh, uh, NASA had this uh, monthly uh, newsletter they would mail out to you. Uh, Scientific American, I had a subscription to. Edmund Scientific. So just a lot of science as a kid at a microscope, telescope. And this was just really weird in my neighborhood to have those kinds of uh, uh, toys. Uh, and then and then parallel that with, uh, with the arts. And when I was in grade school, uh, my shop instructor uh, taught us how to do photography and silk screen. So I had a dark room in my basement. Uh, eventually bought me a screen printing kit. And so those are the kinds of things that just kind of informative pieces. And and last but not least, in the childhood space, always trying to make a dollar, always figuring out how to get your hustle on. So I had a uh, one of my first unusual entrepreneurial hustles was up the street from us, there was a, a recycling company Pre the recycling era, they they uh they recycled glass. So uh, one week we took um, the wagon we had, broke a bunch of glass up, put it in a 55 gallon tank, and took it up to the recycle shop to to see what kind of money we make. I think we made like a quarter. And so that business started and stopped in that week. <laughs> so just always try to figure out how to how to make an extra dollar. So. Fast forward a little bit more in that that story, and I'm trying to add some of the entrepreneurial aspect of, of my journey. Yeah. Um, after I learned how to screen print, when I got to uh, college, no, no, in the eighth grade, I started printing T-shirts, uh, and I came up with these Zodiac mm -hmm. designs uh, and got up enough courage to take those two those shirts to a, a a record store downtown next to Murphy's uh, downtown, downtown Illinois. And I walked around that block for like two or three times to get enough courage up to go into the to store and talk to the owner. And when I went in, he said he didn't buy stolen materials. And I said, no, I, uh, I printed it in my basement. So um, after that, he made a deal, and I sold so many T-shirts that summer. Uh, that stayed with me. I mean, I just always printed T-shirts, sold T-shirts all through college. Um, I mean, ooh, I actually at one time cut a deal with a national magazine called the Black Collegian uh, to produce T-shirts that they sold in their mail order space at that time. So uh, after I... Uh, Graduated from Purdue, I spent the last two years um, at IUPUI, and that was another very transforming period in my life uh, because the most of the students in engineering, uh, well, Purdue and, and in Indianapolis, of course, were uh, uh, white males, 
but this particular year, my junior year, uh, the university had recruited all these international students, Zimbabwe, uh, Pakistan, uh, Tanzania, and we had a table in our in the cafeteria where we all studied together, the students of color. And that's when I became exposed to um, just a global international phenomenon in the world. Uh, so fast forward a little bit more, uh, graduated, and uh, life set up in a way where um, I ended up working for Indianapolis Public Schools right when the IBM PC um, had just really began to become popular. And uh, IPS was then installing these PCs in uh, the various high schools originally. And I uh, took a job there um, to train teachers and uh, provide uh, training to also students uh, uh, who were going to school there. And I did that for four years, and then the Ed Center kind of discovered discovered me because I actually always try to master anything I get involved in. So the PC was new. There was not a lot of work uh, in the classroom. The teachers were brand new to the technology. They were older teachers. And let's just say uh, not very excited about being required to now add uh, literacy to uh, teaching students, except for a few teachers. But I, I took those three years and just bought every book you could imagine on the PC and software and taught myself DBase 3 Plus at the time and other things like that. And then, of course, when I did that, I started another company. And then I went into providing um, training after hours at, the, at, the, at George Washington High School and taught classes to folks who were trying to learn how to use this tool. So I then ended up going downtown to um, work at the Ed Center. I think I did that for three years. And that's when I re it just really dawned on me at that point that working in places that have lots of bureaucracies, uh, while, of course, you always had the issue of race, uh, particularly in those kinds of environments, I was just not a play-by-the-rules kind of guy. So uh, I decided uh, uh, to launch my own T-shirt company, uh, get back in the T-shirt business. And I think that happened when I was sitting there watching the NBA one day with my brother and my cousin. I think the Pistons were playing in the NBA finals for the championship. And there was somebody making a bunch of T-shirts. And so we said, oh, let's, let's get back in the T-shirt business. And that was my journey back into um, to the T-shirt world. So entrepreneur all through the, the lens, science, technology, reading, always been in my, uh, my uh, bandwidth, if you will. And uh, last but not least, how can I make some money? Uh, so it's so interesting because I, because, and then um, I'm so, I, you know, I wondered if you'd been doing community organizing for all this time. I know you've been doing it for a while. So at what point, at what point did you decide to combine 
uh, or in, you know, the community organizing, or was that something that was always, always there while you were running businesses? Well, you know, yeah, ironically, uh, I was an Eagle Scout. Um, when I was growing up, we had a, uh, Boy Scout troop and, uh, as an Eagle Scout, I had a Cub Scout group that I mentored. So I've always been involved with education and educating others, uh, uh, young people in my neighborhood, uh, uh, the boys, scouts. When I got to t- doing computers, ran a computer club with the young people in the high school. So I've always been an educator in some form or fashion. My entry into what we'll call community organizing really began when I was uh, in, in uh, college and uh, National Society of Black Engineers. So I was the president of um, the local chapter, and I was involved with the national work, traveled a lot uh, through uh, encouraging students to um, become um, uh, interested in studying engineering. Uh, the, the actual, more, I will say, political aspect of, of my journey uh, happened when I was at Purdue uh, and, in, and at IUPUI and became exposed to the Black Student Union, and then just became also exposed to uh, political matters. Uh, I think at that time, when I was in college, there was uh, uh, boycotts against South Africa. So that's kind of how I ended up becoming more conscious about uh, issues that were broader than my local community. And uh, at that point, I actually met my wife, who was going to school uh, in, in Flint, uh, studying engineering uh, at the university through a, a, a mutual friend. We were then involved in some community organizing, and uh, that's pretty much how I ended up getting involved more directly in um, uh, community organizing through uh, my consciousness at raising when I was at the university. And so all those pieces blended together, the entrepreneurship, the educator, the technology, and then finally the community organizing. So I uh, did the T-shirt company, and actually even the T-shirt company, when I launched it, it was a, a combination of these various ideas that were running around in my head. Uh, it had a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, training, uh, experiential learning, young people engaged in, in the company. And so those are some of the things that just kind of all blended together. So. Uh, shut down a t-shirt company, I forget what year it was, and then decided I'm going to be a consultant. So I was going to take the skills I learned and I was going to start a uh, consulting company to um, take these things I had learned and provide to others in, in the business. So at that time, um, uh, in fact, and Paulette and I, uh, one of the other co-founders, her son would come to, to um, Indianapolis every summer from Florida, grandson, I'm sorry, grandson. And uh, so we would do these summer enrichment programs with with her grandson and my son and some of the neighborhood boys. And, you know, one of the real goals there was just trying to provide a safe space, a culturally enriching space for African-American males. So this particular summer, she was working um, as an admin, administrative assistant uh, at uh, at that time, it was called Rehab Resource. And um, 
I was hired to do some consulting work in the space. So that particular summer, uh, Diop, my son, who always uh, was challenged with just traditional education, and he had beat the mail home. He was supposed to go to summer school. He got what's called an E in his math class. And if you go to summer school, then you get the, the, the E would be changed to a passing grade. If you don't go to summer school, it becomes an F. And uh, we didn't find out about that until it was too late to go to summer school. So my mom and my wife hit the roof. Says, okay, you need to do something with this child. So he then had full-time work assignment with me at the warehouse when I was doing consulting work. Her grandson, Paula's grandson, came. So he created a kind of a work readiness, cultural enrichment program there in the building. And then some other young men in the neighborhood wanted to join. And so it just made sense that, hey, you want to impact your own children. You want to keep their closest friends close to you to try to make sure that, you know, you, you had the best opportunity to create a safe space and a culturally enriching space. So at the end of the summer, they said, hey, we want to come back in the fall. And that's really, that was really the birth of Kepra at that point. And then we did that from, I think, six years, seven years, right there in that warehouse. Same kind of programs all year round. The boys graduated from high school and uh, went off to college. And we just continued to run the program for other students uh, in uh, in the neighborhoods. And we had some formal relationships. At that time, um, um, Goodwill had a the big picture school. So we had a friend of ours, Cleet Ladd, was working there. And we had a relationship where we took some of the, the young people in that space who uh, were a little more more challenging to place in other spaces, and we continue to work over other programs. And then again, all through this model, entrepreneurship has just been a, a critical theme of the work. So the very first year when we launched it, we opened the Good Stuff Thrift Store in the basement of Rehab Resource. And it was a place to, again, uh, create a, a revenue stream to support our work uh, and also provide an opportunity to employ others in the space. And uh, the model we've always used uh, is what we call the art of the start. Uh, and so we bootstrap, start where you are, what you have, and then, you know, off you go. So uh, that was quite some time ago. Uh, we then moved out of rehab, moved over on MLK for a while. One of the young men who went off to college, I uh, came home for the summer and said, hey, I need a job. And we said, well, we don't we don't really have any jobs, but we got this paint because we were in uh, the recycle business. So we have Miss Tense paint, high-end paints. Uh, we we put him, uh, we, we credited him uh, a paint line, and he went and set up and sold paint off of the Flannery House's lot. We had a great relationship there at the time with the uh, director, the school director. And uh, first week, uh, he sold enough paint to pay itself. Next week, uh, the code enforcement told us we had to shut down. So uh, we then went on a hunt on that block to find another place that was properly zoned 
to reopen our, our paint initiative since we knew it was could be successful. We did that, and we negotiated a deal with the owner of Old Kentucky Fried Chicken at the time. It was closed, and the owner was being harassed by code enforcement to keep the grass cut. So we negotiated with the owner, look, let us use your lot, and we will uh, keep, keep you out of trouble with code enforcement. So I think at the end of that first month, uh, we had a real cash cow going, maybe $3,000, $4,000 off of missed 10 paints that were donated, uh, no cost for facility use. So at the end of the summer, I said, well, we need to keep renting this facility. Uh, and so we rented the building, opened up a paint store, and uh, continued uh, running our youth develop development program out of that space uh, and just as a training ground for entrepreneurship development, social entrepreneurship, and using the tool of social entrepreneurs as a tool for creating leadership and agency. More emphasis on leadership development uh, and not as much emphasis on fiscal capital, but using uh, the model to help create leaders that look for opportunities when it, it appears that there are none. And so that's this kind of model that we've used over the years. So so fast forward to the present. I don't think I left anything out that's critical. Um, we then uh, started working with a more, a broader group of young people and elders. We had a, we had a partnership with uh, Goodwill with their senior uh, citizens uh, training program. So we would have uh, elders in the space doing certain kinds of uh, program work for their own, their own re-entry work for work for, for workforce. But we intentionally always partnered them with other young people in our space to create a, a, a natural, organic approach to allowing seniors to engage with other young people and just do some skill transference in a very organic kind of way. The young people often provided training to these seniors in these, these new tools like Facebook, uh, Twitter, things along those lines. So we just used the model to build community and build community through um, uh, an intergenerational approach to uh, addressing community initiatives and community problem solving. The, so as, as we continue to develop the model, we've always used relationship building as one of the primary tools in the development. So I'll give one example of that. Um, and then how over the years that's just actually become more formalized in our own organizational uh, leadership development tools. But, um, we, uh, I read about, in the newspaper, there was a gentleman who started the, uh, gosh, what's his name, Carter? I think his last name's Carter. He's moved now. But Butler was opening up this eco uh, center on campus. Yeah, Tim Tim Carter. Uh, Tim center, Carter. Center yeah. for Urban Ecology, yep. Yeah, Q, Center for Urban Ecology. And I read this article in the uh, Star that he, uh, editorial he, he had written. I said, man, this guy strikes me as uh, a visionary. 
So uh, I, I called him. Today, uh, like to come over and have coffee. So I went over and had a cup of coffee with him, and uh, that led to another cup of coffee. It led to lunch, and that led to a working relationship for at least a couple of years in the environmental space. Um, that I believe led to um, some, and this is all in the environmental sector. So working with Tim uh, allowed us to engage with other members in the in the environmental space. And so that then led to us building more relationships in the environmental justice space that led to other ways to, to move and engage in community. Now, you know, that space historically has been and still is still very dominated uh, uh, by white folks. And uh, but we always attempted to build relationships and spaces where there were some similarities uh, and try to try to walk forward and find places uh, to, to work forward in that. So even to this day, we're still in, uh, engaged with uh, Q uh, and other folks in the environmental space. But in that space, we're always looking to present the alternative often left out piece of that narrative as we're engaging to bring about uh, positive change in our uh, community. So, so we uh, discovered that the language that folks like to use in that space was social capital. Said, so, okay, so that's the, that's the language that everybody uses to define what it means to build relationships with each other. So we start embracing the language of so, social capital using that language in various spaces we find ourselves in and then uh, begin to study more about the tools that you use to strengthen your social capital networks all through the lens of how do you build relationships uh, cross uh, racial lines, cross uh, industry lines, and things along those lines. And so now we we, we try real hard with our young people to to demonstrate that and show them how to do that. And sometimes it's it's a long walk because, uh, in fact, Stacia, who works with you guys now, uh, we were working on a project. I said, "Well, Stacia, we're gonna we're gonna go over here and have coffee with this guy." And you may know Gary Ryder. I do. Uh, work, yeah, works at BMO, and he was on a panel discussion. Uh, I forget who it was with, but he was the oldest guy there, and he was doing this thing on transit-oriented development. And I said, "Stay." I said, "Stacy, we're gonna call Gary up and see if we have coffee with us." And she said, "What are you talking about? We don't even know this guy." I said, "No worries." So we went and had coffee with him, had two or three coffees, and you know, to this day, we still uh, are engaged with each other and trying to find ways to uh, to move the needle, even though often we're not necessarily in agreement about how to do it. We've established at least some authentic space to communicate and share with each other uh, in spite of uh, the challenges and, and, and dif the difficulties that uh, we often find ourselves in community. How was that? That's, that's great. I mean, that that's that fills in some gaps for me because, um, you, you know, you, you talk about all those experiences, and I'm excited to have – this conversation with Miss Paulette in a few weeks um, as well, but it's almost like, as I, I I say in my intro, Kepper Institute is as much as it's it's about entrepreneurship and 
youth leadership development and activism. It's very much a getting things done organization. And uh, this these these different experiences that you've had, it kind of makes sense, you know, um, because you know you've got a lot of community development organizations, and they yeah they do good work, and then activist organizations. But um, one of the things I've appreciated about working with Kepra is the uh, the results are very tangible, you know, and I know relationships is a huge part of that. But um, I don't know. It's like there's a there's a there's an entrepreneurial thing. There's a hustle that's, that's part of it. Um, and is that, I mean, is that, is that something that just happened naturally or is that something that you, um, have tried to create within the culture? Well, you know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur, you know, I carried newspapers, cut grass, I told the recycling story. So entrepreneurship has been in, in my blood. And, you know, I grew up over, um, uh, in the Riverside area, Dominantly black community, um, working class community, but there were entrepreneurs, business owners in that community. The the, the barber in uh, in my neighborhood lived on our block. Uh, he had a barber shop up at Twenty First and Harding, and uh, the uh, the gas station owner or a couple of brothers that owned the gas station place. So. Uh, there was a TV repair shop on, I believe, on uh, on Martin Luther King Street, uh, back then called Northwestern. So, uh, business ownership was part of the culture of the space. And, you know, we didn't get allowances, so if we didn't go out and, and, and figure out how to make our own money, we, ha we wouldn't have any money. So, uh, I don't think... So I think because that's who I, I've always been in my blood, that's just a part of what I've brought into the careful space, some of the entrepreneurship lens. And then uh, uh, as we moved forward in the work, we just, again, used that as a tool. Now, uh, it's grown and it got, it's expansive. But I do want to say that we try real hard for people not to think that we are in the business of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is a tool we use for building what we call community wealth building. And we also like to use tools that if there's a challenge in your community, what is that you can do about it right now or what you have? So an example of that would be when the double H closed, um, we, our high school students held a community forum and it was packed and the whole forum was about what should we do? And of course, the, these high schools came to us. They said, "These these folks asked us a lot of hard questions. We don't have to answer these questions." But out of that, out of that, uh, that engagement, some members of our community said, "Well, we can provide our own food." I think we had watched a video from a uh, another group out of Ohio that was providing fresh uh, uh, food from local farmers in their neighborhood. So we said, okay, let's, let's do that. That was four years ago, five years ago. And, uh, actually when we went to launch it, other, uh, folks who are interested come to those sessions, say, I want to participate. And so, uh, a lot of it is very organic. Uh, the entrepreneurial piece is just a component of it because the entrepreneurial tool in our minds is a, uh, it's a, it's a platform to help create agency, 
It's a tool that allows us to uh, assist other young people, particularly to figure out how to problem solve with whatever it is you got, inclusive of building relationships, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So, you know, I definitely can't sit here and say, yeah, we planned it this way, but it just organically developed and we tweaked it and we stayed with it. I've been resilient about it. And so, so here we are. Uh, yeah, I think that's, and, that's and what I'll name, say about that. For people who um, are not familiar with the organization, the name Kepra, can you talk K-H-E-P-R-W? Can you uh, give a little background on the name? Yeah, so Kepra is... Uh, it's a comedic word, or, or more commonly referred to as the Egyptian word, but it comes out of Kemet. And it, uh, the, it's represented by a dung beetle, and a scarab. And the scarab beetle uh, lays his eggs in a, a ball of dung, and it, it rolls it out with his hind legs into the sun, and the sun helps to incubate these uh uh, these eggs, and out of this dung come these beautiful winged scarabs. And so uh, Kepra for us uh, represents uh, the whole idea of renewal, uh, rebirth, and really creating out of what would appear to be waste. And so this idea of waste often is, you know, just the human spirit and, and humanity and just trying to, to, to take what we have with where we are and then create beautiful stuff out of what others would say is nothing but uh, but trash. So that's kind of the very skinny version of um, uh, Kepra. And there's a longer narrative to how we, how we got to that as a name for the organization. But um, and, and the, um, they, uh, on one hand, there's an activism of, of addressing uh, most important issues, but also there's an egalitarian kind of environment. Like I, you know, it's only been in the last couple of years, but, you know, I've gone to Kepper forums. You've asked me to speak at a Kepper forum on a panel before, and it's like there's a, uh, the word is egalitarian. Maybe you have your own, your own uh, term for it, but it's like part of the culture is, my, what I've experienced is these are open community forums and, in my opinion, they're some of the only places where uh, people from different walks of life are coming in to talk about really issues that in, you know, in America are very difficult to talk about, but that everybody's going to be heard, you know, so is that, does that have its origins, um, uh, you know, culturally, is that, is, is that, is that something that was, again, that was created, um, you know, uh, by, by you and Miss Paulette, or is that something that was uh, kind of brought in from another discipline? Uh, I would just say you live and you learn. <laughs> uh, you know, in the earlier days, and some might still say we're pretty uh, antagonistic. And uh, you know, you talk to you know there there are um, uh, times when when we have uh, had to speak truth to power on behalf of community, uh, and that's, that's uh, lost to some friends and gained to some friends. Uh, but there have been some, some experiences, particularly as we engage what we call the traditional community economic development world, where residents have come to us frustrated, uh, angry, feeling disrespected, 
and we will try to call some sessions to uh, to uh, provide an opportunity for those voices to be heard. Um, the uh, the forums themselves, we started those forums when these youngsters were in high school, and our community forums in the, in the early days were really about providing these young men an opportunity to, to acquire some some oratory skills, uh, some research skills, and we used those forums to uh, get them outside of their their normal research places. So we when when uh, Al Gore put out uh, the documentary Inconvenient Truth, we had them do a community presentation on that, and the topics would attract folks who normally would not come into our communities. And you got these young guys with uh, uh, wearing their pants at those days, back down around your ankles, you know, just look like hip hoppers. And so, and but when they would go to speak, you know, it was just such a disconnect uh, uh, in that, in that, those models. So the topics were attractive. And then as, 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 you know, you do work for a while, you begin to understand that, well, if you're trying to have impact, you got to be able to to create an environment that will allow folks who don't always agree with each other to come and talk to each other and uh, and be as civil as possible in the space, still being able to have spirited discourse, but uh, uh, as uh, respectful as, as you can create. So I just after doing it for a while, it evolved where we we've kind of created some models to allow us to uh, try to uh, create a safe space. And then some of it's relationship-based too. You know, if I've already established a relationship with somebody like yourself, uh, I can then come back and say, well, can you come over and talk to some folks that normally you would not talk to? Because we've got a relationship that, that, you, that you're comfortable enough with to say, okay, I think, that, I think this space will be safe enough. So I, I don't think we, when we launched, we had a, 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 a framework or a model, but it just kind of evolved as we evolved in, in the work. And, and then actually, as we were being drugged into other spaces. So when we first moved over to this side of town with uh, Kepra, it was when um, the double eight on 28th and Capitol was empty. And we were... Uh, at that time, leasing, uh, running a coffee shop across the street from Double Eight over on um, MLK, and we invited the owner uh, Isaiah uh, at the time uh, over to talk to our young men uh, about the work we were doing, and uh, you know he, he was put on his behind about the depth of the questions they were asking. So when his when his facility was empty. Uh, on 30 up uh, on 28th and Capitol, uh, I say, Paula, call over and see if Isaiah will rent this building to us. And she said, What's wrong, GM? It's not even signed. Wasn't a sign on the building? Mm -hmm. Yeah, wasn't signed or nothing. There, there was no lease sign thing. She said, she said, We can't afford this building. I said, Well, let's go. Let's, let's call. So she did. We had already established a relationship where he was aware of our work, impressed with the work. So uh, he allowed us to rent the building for a year, you know, short-term lease. 
price is embarrassing to even mention at this point. And we ended up in that building for four years. But when we moved into that building, that building had been empty and it was, you know, a major facility on that block for 50 years. So folks would start coming into the space from around, you know, in the community. We had internet access. Folks wanted to use the internet. Uh, and then we were approached by uh, another uh, leader in the community to say, hey, you guys need to become involved with uh, the quality of life plan at that time. Now, mind you, prior to that, we didn't we didn't work outside of our own little community, our own little silo. And then um, Paulette went to one of the meetings, and the rest is history. You know, she comes out of the civil rights era, so she was uh, adamant that we're going to be involved with this quality of life program. We're going to have voice in the community, and that's kind of how some of that other pieces of our work began was through uh, actually ironically moving to a building that provoked enough curiosity for others to say, hey, look, we, we should uh, get Kepra more involved in some of the other kind of work in the community, and that's kind of kind of uh, grew from there. So, so no yeah. plan, no yeah. strategy, boom, that's how it happened. No plan, no strategy. I mean, I... I I would, I would disagree a little bit. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of execution for sure. But my one question is, um, so, you know, you fast forward to 2020 and COVID, the impacts of the economy, many, many businesses going out of business, organizations struggling, and it was, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, somewhat of a banner year for Kepra. So um, the, the program in my estimation, is reaching a bigger and bigger mainstream community, attracting a lot of, you know, partners and followers. And, uh, you know, you've shared that, you know, the community support for the organization keeps growing. What what do you attribute that to? You know, a lot of people looking at 2020 and, and really got, uh, you know, re- really faced challenges. And that's not to say that you guys don't have challenges, but uh, it, it's been kind of a banner year. How would, how would you... Uh, how would you describe it? Uh, well, yeah, it's been a banner year in a lot of ways. Um, but one, we've got a leadership team, even though they're young, a lot of them homegrown. Uh, Diop, uh, he's been with the work from the beginning. Um, Alvin has been in the work for 10 years. Uh, Rasul, who's uh, been in the work 12 years. So these young people have been with Kepra for a long time. So they, 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 the culture of Kepra is in their blood. So, and that culture is, is just really designed to be uh, opportunistic, but uh, opportunistic through the lens of supporting and building community uh, as primary, not as secondary, as primary. So, um, so they just got a lot, they got a lot of years building now and also a lot of years building with nothing you know we we've we've built this very lean it's still lean um and that leanness allows us to uh to do a lot of things with very little resources so one years in the game two um uh uh leanness as a as a model for institution building uh, as two primaries. I would probably also say that uh, 
these are some very, very highly skilled young people in our space. And they train other young people to, uh, to be skilled. So, and of course, with the new tools, the technology tools. So we, when the pandemic hit, we, um, we were opening up uh, Alchemy, a accelerator uh, uh, incubator up at 38th Street. And then the pandemic hit after a four-week trial period, which was uh, also came about because of our involvement in that in that environment in that space. That, but when the when when the pandemic hit, when COVID hit, we had the skill set in-house to put everything on the web, and so we then quickly moved to master these tools like Zoom. Uh, uh, we, we hold these forms, we tweak the skill sets. So we then start hosting more events in these uh, on in the virtual world that actually, you know, ironically has, uh, has provided us a lot more opportunity to grow our social capital in a virtual world, which then, you know, it, it really removes geographical boundaries because you can be anywhere in the world uh, just through connecting via Zoom. And then, we, of course, go into those spaces and still use the same strategies of building relationships uh, uh, in that space. One example in the short term, we ran this uh, book study, uh, book club study with the author of uh, Collective Courage, uh, Dr. Jessica Nimhart. And the last uh, Monday of our show, there was uh, a, um, a lady with uh, archdiocese who had just moved to Indianapolis. She's working housing. Uh, I think her name is Alexandra. But she came to the to our program because she saw it on Facebook, and she said, "Wow, she's going to be doing book study for an organization in Indianapolis." So we connected with her through through this tool. Then we reached out to her. Now we're in, engaging and working with her with some of the housing work that we're involved in in community. So again, one of the reasons because um, we've built the infrastructure, we've built uh, a leadership team of young, smart activists who are more interested in, in, in building community than um, uh, uh, pursuing a pr professional um, careers, at least in, in the moment, uh, that's just, just kind of blessed us with, with that opportunity. Now, the other piece of that, of course, uh, COVID has then provided more uh, dollars available to support uh, communities in the midst of these challenges. And again, we've got infrastructure in place now that allows us to look for those opportunities. Our, our social capital network expanding where we can become engaged and identify other places in that that um, that um, allows it to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll end one more piece on that, and that is that um, you think about Kepper, it's really uh, in some ways a self-organizing uh, entity. So it's designed to be very adaptive. Uh, it's designed to, to look for opportunities and engage and find resources to support those those opportunities. The leadership level, uh, we, we try real hard to make it as flat as possible. 
which then allows us to, I think, uh, kind of move and, and embrace uh, just really the opportunity of the moment. But the fact that we have always built the work through looking for opportunities more so than looking at the obstacles. Now, we do look at the obstacles, and we do address them, but our emphasis on where are these opportunities in the, in the moment. So even now in the pandemic era, part of our, our work now is what are the, yes, COVID is here. It's going, it, the, the impact of COVID is going to be long. Uh, and the impact is the, the other uh, convergences, uh, social, social unrest tied to racial hierarchy, uh, uh, economic challenges, uh, global economic challenges, and uh, climate change. These, these, these are the new normals. But within those new normals, where are the opportunities? What are the things that we can look at and, and pivot to uh, to try to bring about, um, you know, the kind of world we, we, we all want to see differently? So yeah. in the midst of this breakdown, this is a place for us to embrace the opportunity to try to, to reset it and do it differently. And that's that's a really good uh, 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 kind of bridge into what I wanted to to um, ask you about, and that is one of the things that Kepra really preaches in addition to this um, it's a very uh, kind of scrappy, culture and you know bring, bringing people together and and um, is the the importance of relationships and you you have talked you've you've imparted on me a lot of a lot of the importance of uh, part of the challenge what we're seeing right now and it, you know it looks like the fracturing of America is uh, it, it, politically speaking for sure is a a lack of these uh, relationships, you refer to them as transformational relationships that we've, in our communities, we've become very transactional. And that, uh, you know, while you haven't, you've never said, hey, hey, here's the solution to solve all our ills, I know that you have um, impressed upon many people, myself included, that, hey, we, we, need, we, need, to, we need to look differently at how we form relationships and, and invest in relationships. Can you I- expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'll start with that, and I'll walk back to how I perceive what some of the challenges are with that. Uh, the culture itself is transactional. You know, how we, even our institutions, you know, they're driven around uh, profit and loss statements, balance sheets. Uh, and, these, I mean, these are important pieces. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not important. But the outcome-driven approach that all of us are under, and particularly in organizations, makes it difficult to take out time to just build relationships because there's always this sense of urgency that if you're just sitting down and having a cup of coffee with somebody, there's no outcome, and therefore it's a waste of time. But... And I, I would probably say a lot of this, in a very broad sense, is relatively new. I, I haven't done any research on it, but I just think the idea that transactions precedes relationships is a relatively new phenomenon, uh, maybe 100 years or so, I don't know. But people who have healthy relationships 
value the relationship. As human beings, we get more if somebody feels good. You do you give something to somebody and they feel good, you feel good behind it. But it's it's not valued. So what so now all our value is tied to you know, material ownership, uh, where we live, um, uh, all these things that, that are material in nature. In fact, I heard a piece on NPR the other day that, that said as, as it relates to the happy index, uh, the U.S. is way down on that list, that we got more resources and less happiness. And I say that that happiness is tied to the fact that, or lack of it, that we don't value relationships in the same way that we did uh, in earlier times and days. The um, the other piece about relationships is that if you can establish healthy relationships and not just relationships that are uh, monolithic in nature, you know, to just talk to people that agree with you uh, is not healthy. Uh, you need yeah. to have relationships that are has some. It's like being in a marriage. You know, you your marriage is never always 100% uh, uh, in agreement. The growth comes out of the tension. The learning comes out of the tension. So, so the relationships piece is where the really, if you can begin to build relationships that are uh, that are uh, personal non-transactional and open to uh to difference new possibilities and new opportunities can come out out of out of those kinds of spaces now what makes that even more difficult than just the transactional nature of our culture is uh what uh just uh, isabel workinson refers to as the caste system and and uh i i would just say it's, it's a must read but the racial hierarchy uh, uh, here in the U.S., from its beginning, is still uh, a major challenge for us to find ways to build relationships because the culture has been built uh, on a racial hierarchy that uh, often we're not even aware of it. And then, um, depending on our level of uh, sensitivity, our abilities to um, to 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 engage with each other across racial lines is um is is extremely difficult yeah. now the, i'll add one other piece to that in the short and then i do want to come back and and uh challenge you a little bit about uh the difference as, as it relates to the moment but um the toxicity of our relationships uh through a, a racial hierarchy lens makes it difficult for us to communicate across uh those 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 differences so people of color who work inside uh institutions uh running control uh, by the dominant caste uh often are not empowered and even on a subconscious level very cautious about how they negotiate and navigate with power because of the potential consequences for uh that ne that 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 negotiation now, and a lot of it is often not even at a conscious level. It's at a very micro level. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll say that. Now, don't I do? I am con really concerned 
and I, and I don't want to line the, the, the idea of being concerned that, um, you know, we find ourselves back to a place. Uh, it, it, we've never, ever adequately addressed this issue of race in America, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a real clear way and dominant way. And then also uh, this division is not, it's not some new division. It's, it's a division that has never, ever really uh, been reconciled. And so it's a recurring theme in American history. It, 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 it ebbs and flows. Um, uh, and, and now we're back at a particular place now where uh, it's, it's, uh, it puts our democracy at, at risk uh, in ways that uh, I've never, never seen before. Yeah. So it's, it's really, really challenging and, and critical times in our community. That's, I mean, and I appreciate the, the, the uh, clarification. You know, it's like it's not, and I think I even say this sometimes, it's in, in error. It's not, this is not new. It's a, it's a manifestation of something that's been there for generations, if I'm following yeah. you. And so I, you and I talked the day after the election, the general election in November, and just reflecting on uh, – how um, much of uh, our cities and our rural communities have got a lot in common economically um, in terms of the need for more investment, the need for more jobs, health and mental health, and yet there are political actors who no doubt, and I know this is not a new thing, have been exploiting race and other perceived differences and it, I mean, I, you and I had a long conversation. It was just like, how, you know, how do you start to build bridges and how can you, how could you get, um, let's not even say America, let's say just in our own, our own state of Indiana, think about um, getting people to see the commonalities. And I, so one of the first people I think of are you and Paulette, you know, in terms of how, how would you, how could you even start to build that in a meaningful way? And maybe that's the wrong question, Imhotep, but I, I just pose it to you. Well, I don't know, man. I'm, I, I, you know, since the uh, uh, January sixth, our, our email box and our phones are ringing off the hook uh, with organizations that want us to be involved in the conversations, um, the DEI conversations, the racial equity conversations. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, we're, we're struggling with how to, how do we best make ourselves available to, to, to folks who uh, rightfully are trying to figure out how to, how to, uh, to get it right, maybe. Uh, or, um, so I don't, I don't have a good answer yet. We, we have, uh, I should say I have, uh, uh, honor that request in a couple of places where folks who have reached out to me, uh, I know them been re in relationship with each other. And so, uh, we're trying to navigate that now and, and we're trying to navigate in a way that again, tries to find a way for folks to, um, to build relationships with each other. Uh, in this moment. And, and I would also probably say right now, at least on one side of this, this, 
this story. Uh, there are people who are shocked by what's been revealed to them uh, in in about uh, the United States and and some of the, the nastiness related to the issue of community and, and race. Um, but but I'm I'm walking down that road very carefully and cautiously because uh, I don't think most folks really are prepared to do the hard work that comes with trying to have an understanding. So I uh, don't quite have my yeah. model together yet. But. Well, and I'm, I'm aware as someone who's leading a broad-based business organization that – yeah, more businesses now in 2020 or 2021 than any time I can I can remember are coming forward saying we we need to do more. We need to do more about racism. We need to do more about racial inequities in our community. And uh, I mean, my my views on the subject are changing as well. But I I'm navigating. I can understand. I can understand how you would be very discerning as you look at these requests because I am well aware that for like. For a big company to go out with a statement and to say, in, in some ways, it's like the ultimate self-defense move, self-preservation move for a company to go out and make a statement. And I'm not saying that there aren't companies that have made statements about Black Lives Matter and things like that with some level of sincerity. But I'm navigating this territory very aware that with some, for some companies, yeah, it's a, it can be a self-preservation move to say, yeah, we're, we're doing something about it. We take this seriously. And you have to um, dig to, to really figure out in terms of action, does the, does the company or the organization have the will and the, um, yeah, does it have the will and the capability to do the hard work, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, my, you know, I'm with one organization that is doing its best to do the work, and at best, it is uh, uncomfortable. At best, <laughs> uncomfortable at best. Huh? At best, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, better you than me over there. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> do you? And, do you, uh, and ahead, again, sorry. and again, you know, as I've said to you before, uh, you know, let us know if and how we can be helpful of you trying to navigate uh, some little challenging places and times. Well, I think, so. I think the, the, uh, the forums and I, and we'll, we'll, uh, I, I've, I've stayed longer than I meant to, but, uh, and I sure appreciate your time. I think the, the forums that you create, um, uh, create an environment that is too rare in today's, social media driven, like I'm, I'm just going to go in the corner with people who agree with my views um, kind of world where you're really going to take time and listen to divergent points of view. And I guess my question is, I, you know, well, I hope, I hope that you will um, to the extent that you can uh, help, help some of these organizations who want to address this within, um, within their cultures and things like that. As you do that, um, what are what are some things that people you know in the community can expect to see? Like, do you see do you see yourselves engaging with organizations or communities who are serious about um, building these bridges and taking this on? Uh, 
probably yes. I'll start by saying like all the other work we do. But a couple of these I want to be real clear about. We are not and don't plan to become racial equity consultants. Got it. That's that's not the, that's not the business we're in and that's not the business we want to be in. But but we do want to support uh, organizations, businesses, individuals who are interested in bringing about real authentic structural change and we prepare to have those kinds of conversations whoever i think on the short lens in the, in the, in the right now uh the filter that i'm using personally is uh if somebody i know already calls me up and says hey can you help of course I, i'm i'm down to figure out how to do it within reason of my my own my own time and resources uh if i if I don't know the person, I'm not likely to even respond to it uh, uh, unless there's been an introduction made that says, hey, uh, M, I think uh, this person, this group's really authentically trying to figure out how to do things differently. We, we, we'll keep it, sit down and chop it up with them. And so I think that, at least in the, in the short term, will probably be the model that, that we're going to use we are talking about it internally and trying to figure out how how to, again, uh, you know, just be good citizens and servants of community by uh, uh, providing our gifts and talents uh, to communities that are just trying to figure out how, to, how to, to do this in a different way. And I do think this moment in time in history provides us a great opportunity if we if we if we step into it uh, to to make the kind of changes that I think we would all uh, benefit from. So, Imhotep, my last question is, um, and I think you know, I, I'm I'm a we we'll have to have just a regular regular conversation. I, I appreciate you and and Miss Paulette and the wisdom that you share um, on a regular basis. But my question is to close out this topic, at least for now, of transactional versus transformational. If Someone from the community, maybe it's somebody running a business or running an organization, says, "Hey, I want to, uh, I, I, I want, I want to um, understand transformational relationships and really embed that in the culture of my, you know, organization. Where, where would they start? Like, what, 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 you know, what, what advice would you give to them?" Uh, hmm. Well, reading for sure. Um, I would I would start with Cast since that's the one I just finished, and I think it's a a must read. And that's just to get an understanding about what it is you're trying to accomplish there. Yeah. Uh, man, that was a great question. I didn't really come prepared for the for that preparation. I would probably say um, another great book would be uh, Leadership and the New Science, okay. which which deals with, um, um, and actually also systems thinking and primer. Uh, those are some go-to choices for uh, for those who like to read. Uh, now, if you want to move past past reading, uh, I would uh, look at who's in your network already. Uh, not somebody that that's going to be influenced by the power dynamics that. Uh, you can uh, begin to have a, a a regular conversation with. 
a cup of coffee here and there and uh, establish a relationship that allows you to inquire. Now, inquiry itself is a really important tool to get to transformation. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Colby, uh, one of his, uh, his principles, seek first to understand, then be understood. Yeah. So those are some tools I would probably say off the top. Um, yeah. And then, uh, of course, you can put Kepper's email in there and Absolutely. somebody's in the podcast. And they said, hey, I heard the podcast. Can we hop on a phone call or a Zoom call? I think I think we welcome um, that as another a good beginning place to uh, to look at that. But let me let me let yeah. me think about some more, man. That's a well, great question. I, I, I just I appreciate the time, and I look forward to talking to Miss Paulette here in a couple of weeks. And um, uh, yeah, I hope I I hope you understand um, that how influential you are on myself and many others. And uh, at a time, at I guess at a time when there's a lot to potentially get down about, um, uh, you all just provide a com- like a view of the world through a different lens, new relationships and, you know, and people that I might and our organization might not have otherwise met. And, uh, I just, every time, every time I talk to you and miss Paulette, again, it just helps to kind of pull me out of the weeds of whatever's happening that day. And I know that's something that you do for a lot of people in the community. So I, I just appreciate it. All right, man, we, we appreciate your work too. So it's, it's reciprocal. And of course, feel free anytime to, you want to get out of those weeds, just hop on the phone and call me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Okay. okay. Well, I will let you get on with your evening, but thanks again, Imhotep. This is great. And it was great. It was great just filling in the gaps on the, the, the history of Kepra. I learned some new things too. Yeah, well, you'll get the truth next time when you talk to Paula. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Okay, thanks so much. Have a great evening. All right, man.